are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and finishing each other's sandwiches. That's what I was going to say. This is season three, episode four, Frozen, Open Up the Gates. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Good morning, Adam. Well, it's morning for me. Good morning for us. Morning for us. Usually we record in the afternoon, but my kids have a half day, so we are recording in the morning, and we're both a little bit still waking up i think excited uh, to be talking about frozen 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 one this is actually our first ever two-parter we are talking about frozen one this episode and frozen two next episode um although i'm, I'm sure at some point we will accidentally mention something about frozen two today <laughs> absolutely but yeah i'm i'm excited I, I i first saw frozen in the theaters back in was it 2013 2013 yeah Just a long and time i ago. walked out of the theater and immediately bought the uh soundtrack mm-hmm. on my phone like as i was walking out of the theater i purchased the soundtrack on my phone um because it was so good mm-hmm. and uh and the the songwriters the the lope um Kristen and robert lopez you know when we were kids it was alan menken yeah. and tim rice and and those guys doing um you know all of the disney renaissance movies yeah. and now we have the Lopez's, we have uh, Paul and Pasek, um, and then of course Lynn Manuel Miranda doing Moana. So we have this whole new generation of songwriters who are doing these wonderful Disney movies. Absolutely, and they're showing a vulnerability that I really like. In one of the refreshing things about Frozen was just the the humor and the and the emotional content, which obviously we're going to be talking about today. But it's one of the things you know we we both love about Moana. I love about all of the, all of these. Um, new this as you say new generation of songwriters is there's a willingness to kind of take it to the next level it's not just about the old fantasy tropes it's more deep and internal looking inside which has been really fun to analyze for this podcast speaking of vulnerability our scripture quotation today uh, comes from jesus's words in uh, matthew 23 as he's looking out over the city of Jerusalem after having lots and lots of squabbles with the uh, religious establishment saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your people together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you didn't want that. Our quotation from Nerd Canon is from For the First Time in Forever, Reprise, and I'll Spare Your Ears by Not Singing It. These are the lines that Anna sings. Because for the first time in forever, you don't have to be afraid. We can work this out together. We'll reverse the storm you've made. Don't panic. We'll make the sunshine bright. We can face this thing together. We can change this winter weather, and everything will be all right. When you begin watching a Disney movie, the first thing you listen for is the I Want song. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good I Want songs in yeah, Disney. Yeah, you've got Part of Your World is Ariel's I Want song. I Can Go the Distance from Hercules. From Hercules, there's a good yep. I Want song. Moana's, um, shoot, how what is Moana? I, how Far I Go, How Thank Far I'll you. Go. But in Frozen, the I Want song is really interesting because it's it's Do You Want to Build a Snowman? It's mm-hmm. not an I Want it's a do you want the I want song in Frozen is an invitation right. to somebody else. It is Anna singing to Elsa's door. And we see both Anna's great desire, her want, which is to be in relationship with her sister. And, and the I want is delivered in the form of an invitation that is over and over again rebuffed. And Anna has absolutely no idea why. Right, so Anna's issuing this invitation and Elsa's rebuffing it, but it comes from her own I want, which is to keep her sister safe. The whole reason she's keeping the door shut between them is she's afraid that her power will hurt her sister, as it does in that opening scene with the two of them playing in the ballroom. Yeah, so we have these competing I wants that over the course of the film, of course, is what gets resolved. By the end of the song, they're both sitting on either side of the door completely devastated their postures are identical too and they're not able to comfort each other after their parents death elsa didn't even go to the funeral uh they're there on the hill and it's just anna standing there with the bishop and everybody else 
And it's because Elsa has been told that she must remain hidden in order to keep other people safe. And she takes it very, very seriously. You really see in that in that scene, in those in the scenes that is it kind of flashes forward in these two girls' lives. Um, Anna's outside the door. She's singing to her, you know, she's hanging out by herself, but Elsa's inside and she's spending time with her parents as they try to guide her, mostly her father. Um, he gives her the gloves for the first time and says, you know, gloves will help conceal it. Don't feel it. And then they both stay together. Don't let it show. Yeah, it's a litany. It's a litany that they repeat together. It's the only way that the father can foresee her power being under control is to completely suppress it. When he initially finds out about a little bit about Elsa's magic from the troll grandpa, he asks, you know, is, is Elsa born with these powers or cursed? And, and his, her father says born, but getting stronger. But then he treats it like a curse by wanting her to completely conceal it for fear of not just what she can do to the land, but maybe what she could also do to her sister. You must, um, he, he wants her to completely suppress it. And we see that in this, in this I Want song, Elsa trying to conceal the powers to protect her sister. Going back to the the end of um, the end of Do You Want to Build a Snowman, Anna sings, "I'm right out here for you. Just let me in." So this is the this is the end of the I Want part of the film and setting up this idea that what we are looking for is these open gates, right, these open, the open doors. doors. And that love is this, which we'll get to when we move to that song. And yet they are still sitting on either side of the door in their grief. And and seeing that final shot of Elsa kind of completely wrapped up in her own power. Um, she's surrounded by ice, which represents, I think, the grief that she's feeling and the distance from her sister. I'm sure she wants to open the door, but she's feeling trapped by her own powers and has to keep the door shut as an act of love, although it's misguided. And they're both, you know, identically placed on either side of the door, but sort of wrapped in these emotions of their own, you know, Elsa's, which you can actually see by the by the frozen sort of target, almost like pointing in on her all alone. And throughout the film, we'll notice like which direction the ice spikes kind of go. Um, we'll see that and we can keep track of it. But they they're very representative of, of what she's trying to do, either push people away or maybe even having some self-recrimination when they come in at her. So we get to the scene where the gates are opened. It's Coronation Day. It's um, Anna's Coronation Day. Coronation Day. It's coronation day. It's Elsa's birthday. She's coming of age. And so now now that her parents have died and presumably there was some kind of regent in place, now Elsa will be crowned as queen of Arendelle. And they're going to open the gates for one magical, beautiful day. We have that wonderful scene of Anna sliding around the castle, kind of wondering, why do we have 8,000 salad plates? Yeah, so Anna starts singing about the open gates and and she she is so full of life. And at this point, she's running around by herself, uh, and Elsa is at the balcony looking out in, with trepidation. Mm-hmm. She's, she's practicing without the gloves on, trying to lift the scepter and orb of her office and can't do it with, without letting some ice out. And so she, and she starts to repeat that, that litany that her father had taught her. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Ouch, right? This is, yeah. this is, this is some real, you know, parental. We talked about uh-huh. parents last time with Stranger Things. But Absolutely. How did parents, you know, well-meaning parents mess up their children? Conceal, don't feel, put on a show, make one wrong move and everyone will know. Um, and then Anna sings, it's only for today, which is like, I, I'm an, I need to soak up as much of this as I possibly can. And then Elsa sings, it's only for today. Like, I only have to do this for <laughs> 24 this. hours and then I Not can go back. 20, yeah. <laughs> Not even that long. They sing the exact same words and have completely opposite meanings. Well, and, and the way they, they talk about opening up the gates, um, there's like Elsa's parts of this song are very much in like a minor, serious sounding voice and key. Whereas, uh, you know, Anna's are, I'm going to get the names mixed up at least once. So forgive yeah, me, try to no use worries. context clues. Whereas Anna is like just doing it and excited. Now open up the gates. I want to go out. And, El- and the song ends with Elsa saying, tell the guards to open up the gate in this like commanding, almost angry, determined voice. Like she's really set herself. She's got the gloves on. She's going to be putting up a show. 
putting up a front as best she can to get through this one day where she has to show people herself. There's an interesting key change in that moment in the song too, from a musical standpoint, uh, where you know she sings, uh, "Tell the guards to open up the gates," and then Anna sings over top of it, "The gates," and it's a really strange chord that's being made right there as mm. we as we have transitioned from one part of the song to the other. And I've always loved that loved that moment because it shows musically that disconnect that the two sisters are feeling that. Yeah one desires for the gates to be open and one does not want them to be open, but needs them in order to be coronated. And we'll hear those clashing, clashing sisterly duets um, in the reprise of um, for the first time in forever, when they're both singing at the same time, our nerd quotation, they're Mm -hmm. singing in like different keys and it gets more discordant as it goes on. But it's so interesting to see this um, because of what the gates mean for them. And I think as part of our our theme for the day of of opening up the gates um, for Anna, Opening up the gates means a chance to be noticed for the first time. It seems like in forever, as she says. Um, I will be noticed by someone. Yes, I'll be noticed by someone. Maybe I'll find the one. The one. And she thinks that romantic love will be her way of finding connection and love. Um, when in fact, throughout the film, we'll see it's sisterly love that gives her that that result. Yeah, the true love become is a sisterly love, not a romantic love. But she's basically saying, "All right, twenty four hours. I need to find." I need to find true love in this exact snap, period snap. of time. And of course we, we, we need to say that we're obviously playing on the Disney tropes <laughs> yes. of Cinderella, uh-huh. you know, finding true love in 10 minutes when she starts dancing with the prince in this Anna craves this affection. She, she needs somebody to show her what she considers love to be, which is really attention attention right whereas Elsa's showing her love by not hurting her Anna interprets that because she doesn't know why Elsa's walling herself off she interprets that as distance and coldness Mm -hmm. literal literal coldness and so we get to that love is an open door song where Anna is just like primed to receive the first open attention she's gotten since her parents died you imagine Mm -hmm. it doesn't go so well it does not it's a great song I know that's the problem is that they, you know, they do such a good job making you like Hans. I know. Uh, and then when he turns on her, you're like, oh man, I should have seen that coming. You should have, but they do, they do a great job. I mean, I was still heartbroken. Like when he falls in the water and he's like looking at her with that, with those like warm brown eyes. And you're like, yeah, it's a great, he's just, cute. he's just looking at the opportunity. So I love this song because it's a wonderful, it works on so many levels, right? Love is an open door for both of them. Anna, love means someone opening up the door as her sister has not been doing all these years. But for Hans, Anna's love or infatuation with him is an open door he can step through to find his own place as the youngest of 13 brothers. He's not going to inherit anything from his kingdom. So he wants to find a princess to marry. And as he says later in his confession, he would, he would have arranged an accident for Elsa eventually so he can be king of Arendelle. So him, like, love is an open door and opportunity to get what yeah, he wants. Right. And he sings, he sings, say goodbye to the pain of the past. We don't have to feel it anymore. Mm. Right. It, it's, it's, there's some, there's a huge manipulation there. Like he, he, had, he can feel Anna's need and in the way that he he mirrors, like when they have that, um, our mental synchronization can have but one explanation. You and I were just meant to be. It shows another misunderstanding of love. It doesn't mean walking in total lockstep, being identical. It means being complementary to each other, fit, you know, working with one another. It doesn't mean being identical and never having any conflict and always being the exact same. So, but he is just giving her this kind of simplistic simple, open love or seemingly love um, that she obviously falls for very closely. And one of the most interesting motifs of this that we that sort of introduces a theme that we've already seen with Elsa is the gloves. Do you want to talk a little bit about the gloves in this? Oh, man. Uh, yeah. So Hans, yeah, Hans always has gloves on. I never noticed that until I was watching it for this podcast because mm-hmm. I watch movies a lot more closely for the podcast than I do normally. Oh, sure. Yeah. The only time that Hans takes his gloves off is when he is monologuing to use the Incredibles, you know, uh, villain monologue, (laughs) villain monologuing. Let me tell you my entire plan. 
after he he's he's dousing the candles with his fingers, you know, not even blowing them out. He does the he does the villain, you know, like licks his fingers and yeah. This is so this the, is towards the end of the movie. Yeah, the he takes the, the gloves off when he's revealed to be a villain. But in the this only, scene, but that's the only time, right? That's the only time he takes the gloves off. The rest of the time, he has them on. And so w- when we talk about people having gloves, <laughs> it's kind of this interesting uh, visual. So when when uh, Elsa throws her gloves away during let it go she then becomes her own self and what her, her true self and we'll talk about that in a minute but hans reveals himself to be the villain by when he takes his gloves up and then he sticks it right back on when he's getting ready to leave the room right. to go talk to the to go talk to the the council or whoever they are the but you have you for some reason all of these ambassadors from other countries like france vaguely european at the end of this loves an open door duet we see them holding up their hands to the moon and making like a heart and you see anna's very conspicuously bare hands and hans in the the white gloves creating the top part of the heart and so it just really hammers home that he's putting on a show for her he's being exactly who he thinks she wants him to be it shows the concealment of elsa and of hans shows that they are you know trying to be who they think they need to be by putting on the gloves you said earlier that hans recognizes anna's sort of simplistic understanding mm-hmm. of of the need for you know true love you know, to happen in a moment that the Disney princess kind of love that, that mm-hmm. we, you know, see from the classic Disney films. And then they go and they talk to Elsa. She says, what do you know of true love? And Anna says, more than you, all you know is how to shut people out. And then later she says, why do you shut me out? Why do you shut the world out? What are you so afraid of? Mm-hmm. And then, so we discover here that fear is what is actually holding on a holding Elsa back Uh, and it's fear because of the curse that we talked about earlier and her father basically trained Elsa to fear who she is absolutely you know she was never allowed to embrace the fullness of her identity Uh, her identity includes this wonderful magic that she has which yes can be dangerous and so we're as we move towards let it go you know the Duke of Wesselton says the queen has cursed this land. She's a monster. And Anna responds, she was scared. Anna understands that there's a that there's a fear-based reason for Elsa's behavior here. Right. And it's worth mentioning that this is based on the Hans Christian Andersen tale, The Snow Queen, which does have, you know, this is kind of like the maybe like a backstory. It's a very, it's a very loose adaptation. But in that, the Snow Queen is the villain. And this you could imagine how without Anna's um, determined love that Elsa could easily become this villain far up removed on the mountain, freezing all of the world around her and not, not open to, to forgiveness or healing. And so when we move to Let It Go, this beautifully packaged music video in the middle of the movie. Right. So this, I think this, this song has been taken, it can mean many things, one of which is living as you are meant to be, being uncloseted. But but let it go is you know she's coming out as herself. Yeah, and she and she starts with couldn't keep it in. Heaven knows I tried. Mm-hmm. You know she she thinks it's failure to show her powers. That's what she's been taught. That's what she's lived for dec- decades at this point. And the exhaustion that like the cumulative exhaustion of putting up that mask all the time. She just finally gives it up, and she's able to be a lot more free now. She's not trying to live by their rules. She says, like, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. There's a a pendulum swing during Let It Go from the complete concealment of her powers to the this amazing display of what she's actually capable of. The first time she sings Let It Go, she sings Turn Away and Slam the Door. Mm. She's still closing gates here. She's still closing doors in the song "Let It Go," right. and the and the song ends with her slamming the door of her castle. And she's she's building the kingdom of a kingdom of isolation. It looks like I'm the queen. The only thing she's fit to isolation. be queen of. Oh no, I've taken one d four psychic damage from that pun. <laughs> that was that's not my pun. That's the songwriters. The only thing she's fit to be queen of in her mind is this empty, open isolated North mountain where there's no other people that she can hurt. And that's where she feels if she's going to be 
using her powers. They're already out there. Everyone knows she has no sense in hiding them anymore. So she's going to come up here where she can't hurt anybody. That's her ultimate goal is to not hurt anybody. And since she can't keep them in anymore, she has to go away. Yeah. And she sings the one thought crystallizes like an icy blast. I'm never going back. The past is in the past. Remember uh, Hans, Hans had just sung a couple of minutes earlier, say goodbye to the pain of the past. We don't have to feel it anymore. And like we're seeing those those parallels between Hans and Elsa a little yeah. bit with the gloves and this, we have her singing almost the exact same thing. You'll never see me cry, Elsa. You'll never see me cry, yeah. Um, because remember, we got to conceal those feelings. It was irresponsible for me to ever live in Arendelle with these powers. And, and you see her start to take joy in the powers for the first time when she raises the castle around her. And um, as she's singing, she does that transformation from that the, the gown that she wore to the coronation um, with the cloak that she let go dramatically in the wind. As she says, the cold never bothered me anyway. And then she transforms into the ice queen, that blue dress. Her hair gets all disheveled. Her makeup somehow magically turns a lot more intense. She's magic. That's fine. She's magic. And you see that transformation come at the bo- from the bottom up, like the palace is feeding her and giving her a costume. And we'll talk about this maybe more in the second in our second podcast episode, but the transformation she undergoes in the next movie comes from the heart outwards. So this is a lot more, mm. it's, a, it's a powerful transformation, but it still isn't fully true to her identity. It's true to her in this moment, which is maybe almost an overreaction. And, and the second movie, she'll kind of cringe at this memory. Like, yeah, oh, right. wow, I was really <laughs> knocks it away. a little bit too much. Um, but here it's about, she's coming out, she's taking off the mask and she's learning how to be herself for the first time ever. And yeah, it's not going to go so great, but how does she have a chance to learn if she's never had a chance to try? And the perfect girl is gone. She sings right. that perfect she, girl is gone. And she kind of does that like little like hip sway. She like kind of is a little bit like sexier. Like she's had so much repression that now she's letting everything out. And um, maybe this isn't truly who she is, but it's, she's going to try on an identity because she's never had a chance to do anything else. And it's also, I think the only at this point, the only way that she can see being who she thinks she is which is kind of the monster that the Duke of Wesselton right. has named her. her yeah, which she says later. So after Let It Go, we have a long sequence as Christoph and Anna get together and meet Olaf and so forth. And as they are getting up to North Mountain and getting ready to go see Elsa, Christoph says, you know, most people who disappear into the mountains want to be alone. And Anna says something very telling here. Nobody wants to be alone. And that's so, so like her. They get they get to the palace and they go up. And I, I've always really loved the moment where Anna's not knocking and Olaf says, <laughs> knock, knock. Do you think she Do knows, think how, she knows to how to knock? knock? <laughs> but I've, I've never focused on Anna during that scene. Right. But when you watch her, you realize the the facial expression is showing the 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 memory of how many times has she knocked on Elsa's door and and cons- and eventually stopped trying like by the time they're teenagers she just walks by and, and hesitates and says like no I'm not gonna try it again yeah will she be rebuffed this time she knocks and then she sings she says huh it opened that's a first and and so we finally have an open door they come together and they talk and of course, we can't stop the movie here. We need their, they, they it, it wouldn't work if all of a sudden everything, they clear the air in one conversation. Mm-hmm. Movie finished. Yeah, we need to have this confrontation, which is the reprise of For the First Time in Forever, um, which, which starts after Elsa says, I never knew what I was capable of, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, now I do. I know what I'm capable of, but she's still afraid. She still thinks she's going to hurt people. I belong here alone where I can be who I am without hurting anybody. At this point, she doesn't know that Arendelle is covered in snow. You know, Arendelle's in deep, 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 deep snow. snow. Oh. <laughs> and that's where the duet starts to diverge and you get the the voices clashing against one another is after that she, you know, Elsa's happy with her power up here alone, but then she has this horrible sinking realization that she's cursed the place she loves and she doesn't know how to undo it. Anna's offering the solution, working it out together, which ends up being the solution to the problem. But Elsa's so trained to fear her power that she says, I can't control this curse. You're not safe here. 
and eventually, you know, explodes in a, in a moment of frustration. That's what, what hurts Anna and freezes her heart. And the ice spikes that grow um, after that, at the end of the song, are facing inward. So in, whereas before in the ballroom, when she's telling everyone to like, please leave her alone, the ice spikes shoot outward in a defensive wall. After she hurts her sister again, you see them growing inward, creating again, like a prison that she's trapping herself in, feeling trapped in her own powers. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and Elsa or Anna has sung, you don't have to live in fear. Mm. because for the first time in forever, I will be right here. But Anna doesn't understand that that's what Elsa fears, is Anna being hurt again. And it's so frustrating to see it from like both of their perspectives and, and fully understanding, like how could Anna know she's had the memories of the magical accident removed? Um, she just wants to help and support her sister. And, and for Elsa, that's her very worst fear. And it ends up being true as she hurts her again. When I was taking notes on this, I wrote down in bold, how can Elsa be both free and engage in life-giving relationships? That's that's the the quandary that Elsa finds herself in here. Yes, I'm alone, but I'm alone and free. So how can she she desires freedom and she has consigned herself to this isolation, uh, which is which is all she's ever known, really. You know, right. especially so since other, her parents the other died. end of the pendulum swing. She went from being alone and repressing her powers to alone and expressing her powers. But in the middle is a place where she can be with her powers at peace and in loving relationship with her sister and her people. And after after Marshmallow, you know, kicks them kicks them out, and as you <sighs> said, the spikes the spikes are starting to to grow in on Elsa. She yep. says, "Get it together. Don't feel. Don't feel." It's, it's like this obsessive litany of just trying to shut down this power that's growing out of control. As she's learned that it is out of control, she can't un, unfreeze the fjord. And so we move to our final song, which is Fixer, Fixer Upper. Upper. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, which I only have one line from it, which I, I've always loved, which is people mm-hmm. make bad choices when they're mad or scared or stressed, but throw a little love their way and you'll bring out their best. True love True brings love out brings the mix. Best. I just, I love the line. People make bad choices when mm-hmm. they're mad or scared or stressed. It's so true. Well, and that's the kind of like what I, the, the vulnerability I was talking about at the start of the episode of the, these new songwriters that are going to write in something that we all kind of know is true, but having a Disney character sing it. I wonder how many kids hearing this will kind of take that lesson to heart and really learn from it in the future. Um, I also, I had written down two other lines from this. You can fix this fixer upper up with a little bit of love. So the idea that we're all, the whole song ends up being, we're all fixer uppers um, and we all, all we need is love. Um, and the Christoph's um, isolation is confirmation of his desperation for healing hugs, that healing hugs and this love um, can bring out the best in us. And uh, only the and that's also at the end of this scene. So they they don't get married right here, right? The the trolls have just the, taken not what they want and, and taken it to the next level. Yeah. Um, but Grandpappy rolls up and says, you know, only an act of true love can thaw a frozen heart. And so it's the trolls that give them the idea of true love's kiss. And then Kristoff is the one who thinks Hans is the one who's needed. Right. Go find yeah. Hans. Go find Hans. Um, who is this Hans? Um, the I guess the last thing with Fixer Upper is you know. Um, you can't uh, you can't change him because people don't really change. Mm-hmm. Um, but love is a force that's powerful and strange. You know, they're the, so the, wise. These love experts. The love experts. Um, and that goes back to the the thing with Hans and Anna, which is that immaturity of a relation of the the true love that happens mm-hmm. within ten minutes of of meeting, where we are completely in sync. Um, another thing that can tends to happen in immature relationships is the thought that you can change somebody that somehow you're, you're flinging your, you're, you're flinging wide your gates, you're opening up your doors is going to change somebody for the, for the better mm-hmm. who might be using you, who, who might not, your relationship might not have the mutuality that a strong life-giving relationship has. And so when we talk about opening up our gates to that vulnerability of relationships, we have to always put in the corrective that being vulnerable only works in a relationship when there is mutuality and reciprocation. That if only one member of a couple shows themselves to be vulnerable, only one member of the couple is giving, then the other person is is just um, is just using them, is taking and taking and taking, which leads to 
um, very imbalanced relationships. I didn't mention this when we were talking about um, the first instance of for the first time in forever. But before that song, they're, they're all, all the people are excited about the gates opening and the Duke of Wesselton has a really indicative line. He's like, open up the gates. Um, what does he say? That I may steal Ex- your, what is it? Yeah, yeah, steal your treasures and exploit you. Like he wants the gates open so he can be one-sided exploitative. Yeah, um, did I say that out loud? <laughs> exactly. So he shows, she shows, he shows his true nature. Um, wanting to engage in a one-sided plundering type of relationship um, with his trade partner. Now, and the gates close again after Kristoff delivers Anna. Again, he's, he's doing what he thinks is right. Kind of like, you know, Elsa closing the door thinking this is, this is what's going to keep Anna safe. Um, but actually, I guess, I don't know if it would have, if their love, if their kiss would have worked. Um, I'm not really sure if it would have, if they have true love. Yeah, I don't think it would have. No, I, I think, you know, there's not much of a difference between knowing somebody for a day and knowing somebody mm-hmm. for three or four days, however long Kristoff and Anna are together. It's a, it's that, again, the Disney, the Disney trope going back to Little Mermaid specifically Ugh. and Sleeping Beauty and Snow yeah. White specifically. There's a lot of true love's kisses, right? And so when we finally get to the scene of Hans leaning in. We learn his true stripes. And he leaves Anna to die of her frozen heart. Oh, Anna, if only there was someone out there who loved you. Which, again, sets us up for Kristoff coming to do the kiss. And that, and that Anna, I mean, someone out there does love Anna, but she, more importantly, she loves Elsa. And that true love for her, for her sister is what's going to, she doesn't have to be a reciprocant. Reciprocant? That's a good word. I don't know. Is that the right word? She doesn't have to be a reciprocant of love. She is giving love, and that's what thaws her heart, the act of sacrifice. Not that not that she's just sitting there passive while someone comes and kisses her, but she's going out there to save her sister. Yeah, because Kristoff is running to her on the ice, and she turns away when she sees Hans about to swing his sword at Elsa and puts herself in the way. And and that's uh, and that's right that's right after Olaf has said love is putting someone else's needs before yours. This is where again we have to have that corrective about mutual mm-hmm. relationships, like you know how Kristoff brought you back here to Hans and left you forever. <laughs> he loves you enough to leave oh you. Oh gosh! Um, and so Anna's sacrifice is the act of true love, and then Elsa finally embraces her sister. Yeah. When she is made of ice. That's the because they don't touch. Mm-hmm. I think they bump shoulders at one point. Yeah, you know Elsa, when they're like, standing on the dais. Yeah, she like playfully and and Anna's so shocked by that. But they've not. There's no touching at all until this moment when her sister is made of the thing that you know it's too late now. I mean, I can touch her so, now because yeah. she's she's gone. But then that love will will thaw a frozen heart. So they're they're she's draped over Anna's body, and we start to see. The, the thawing happened from the heart out. Yes, and then Elsa comes to the realization that love love will love has thawed Anna's frozen heart, and of course, love will thaw the fjord and come and and save the people. So this this act of sacrifice on Anna's part has shown Elsa the way. So really, truly, they can solve this together. They just never were able to. And now she can use her magic playfully. So they have some fun with the skating, you know, and all that. And Anna says, I like the open gates. And Elsa Mm -hmm. says, we are never closing them again. And the last musical cue. Yes. Begins with for the first time for for, in forever Mm -hmm. and ends triumphantly with, do you want to build a snowman? As Mm -hmm. Anna and Elsa are holding hands and skating in the courtyard. The very last musical moment of the film is that motif of, do you want to build a snowman? It's finally come to fulfillment. Of, of they are, you know, metaphorically building the snowman together hand in hand, facing facing down Elsa's powers, not with fear, but with love to temper it, love to control it, love to give it a, an outlet. Glide and pivot. Glide and pivot. This time on the podcast, we're talking about chapters 11, 12, and 13 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 11, The Firebolt. 
Harry finds a picture of Sirius Black from his parents' wedding day. How could this laughing man have betrayed them? The trio goes to visit Hagrid, who tells them the bad news that the Malfoys are pressing charges against Buckbeak. They agree to help with the Hippogriff's defense, but hours of searching the library prove fruitless. On Christmas morning, Harry wakes to find the best present ever, the Firebolt racing broom from an anonymous benefactor. Hermione is afraid the gift is from Sirius Black. She's right, by the way. So she rats out Harry to McGonagall, who takes the broom away for safety testing. This is only going to matter insofar as it's another straw on the camel's back of Ron and Hermione's friendship. A silly Christmas dinner with Dumbledore, being just delightful, finishes the chapter. Chapter 12, The Patronus. The new term starts, and Harry heads to his first anti-dementor lesson with Professor Lupin, who still looks ill. Lupin teaches Harry the Patronus charm, a ridiculously complicated piece of magic, which Harry begins to grasp the corner of after a few tries. The trouble is twofold. First, Harry hasn't found a happy enough memory to fuel the spell. And second, he kind of, sort of, secretly wants the Dementor to affect him so he can hear his parents' voices, even if it means hearing them die. At one of his lessons, Harry learns that when a Dementor kisses its victim, it sucks out the victim's soul. They live on as nothing but a husk. This awful thought stays with Harry for about 10 minutes until McGonagall gives him back the firebolt, and then it's off to the races. Hermione rightly stands by her actions, and now that the broom is back, could there be some rapprochement? Emphatically not, for Scabbers is gone, and blood and cat hair point to only one culprit, Crookshanks. Chapter 13, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. The unimaginative name for this chapter says it all. Gryffindor beats Ravenclaw on the strength of an unfair broom matchup. Also, Harry succeeds in casting the Patronus charm, but only because the Dementors he was defending against were actually Malfoy and his goons. The important bit here is that Sirius Black got into Gryffindor Tower with Neville's lost passwords and nearly kills Ron? In the beginning of chapter 11, as Harry is coming back from the three broomsticks after hearing all the the chatting about Sirius Black, hatred is coursing through Harry like a poison. Oh, yeah. Um, and remember, Harry is the one whose gift is love. Mm-hmm. So to have hatred in here, it really it's act it's affecting him like poison. I think that's a really good description of what hatred can do. Absolutely, and it kind of what I what I do like about this chapter though is it it sort of he gets a one track mind for figuring out more about this for wanting to go after Black, and he even wants to go see Hagrid and kind of ask him like, why did you never mention this? But actually, it's his love for Hagrid that kicks that train of thought out of his mind, um, seeing Hagrid so sad and miserable and scared for Buckbeak, Harry doesn't go there. He doesn't end up, you know, reproaching his friend for not mentioning it. And then it's, it's interesting how we have in this moment, this, uh, this poison of hatred coursing through him. And then when in chapter 12, we start our anti-dementor lessons, we need to access joyful, happy memories. Mm. And it's really sad that Harry doesn't have a whole lot going for him. His memories are kind of, he's kind of lame. He's, he brings up, you know, he, he has to produce this positive force, as Lupin says, a projection of the very things that the Dementor feeds upon, hope, happiness, the desire to, to survive. And Harry comes up with the first time he rode a broom, Gryffindor winning the House Cup, and finally what produces the incorporeal Patronus was the mem- moment he'd realized he'd be leaving the Dursleys. The movie changes this and adds in him kind of coming up with... Um, not so much a memory, but a feeling of being held and talked to and loved by his mother and father, which I think is a lot more appropriate because it's actually a, like a relationship, whereas these are just moments. I don't know. What do you yeah, think well, about that's, that? That's I think when we get to him actually casting the Patronus, is this only in the movie where he thinks of his friends? I think, no, it, he definitely it thinks of his too? friends several, I think at the end of the book, at least he thinks of his friends. Um, and then in book four, he does as well. That's the important thing, I think, yeah. is that the original, the memories that don't produce a Patronus in the first, in his first lessons aren't about relationships. Mm-hmm. That they're about flying and, and winning the house cups and, and an anti-relationship, you know, the leaving yeah, a relationship. I'm not going to be with these people anymore. Yeah. And so none of these have to do with a good relationship. And the best memories are ones that have to do with, you know, good relationships with other people. Especially for Harry, given how relational and loving he is. I, th- I think that the Patronus charm, it really is something that needs that relational energy, I think, 
in order for it to work because those are the most powerful memories. Just imagine a memory of Harry flying. Mm-hmm. And what if Ron had been flying next to him on a broom? What if you Ron know? actually had a broom instead of, you know, with his best friend who's got all that gold? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Ron okay. could have been next to him. <laughs> yeah. But, but imagine how much stronger that memory would have been if it had been me flying and my best friend flying next to me. Mm-hmm not just leaving the Dursleys, but going to live with Ron, maybe. Right. Or later in the book, going to live with Sirius. That's what powers his his, dement- his uh, Patronus later. Our best memories are going to be ones in which we're sharing things with other people. Mm. You know, you, you'll often hear people say, you know, you and I do funerals for, we, we mm-hmm. officiate at funerals and, and you'll hear people when they're talking about their loved ones who have died the things that they say never have to do with their stuff or oh, their yeah. or their job or yeah, whatever. It's always about it's the always time spent. The time spent with other people. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's what we learn with the Patronus charm. Uh, I do have one kind of, this is sort of a plot hole question, which I know that we don't love doing these, but this mm. one really bothers me. Why does the Boggart Dementor make Harry hear his mom? I, I don't know. And I wondered that as well. I mean, maybe they get the powers which is really horrifying. If it had turned into Voldemort, that would be truly terrifying. So Yeah, but Lupin sees the moon and the moon's not like... It's not going to turn him into a werewolf. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> actually turn him into a werewolf. So. No, no, but it's very convenient. Yeah, it's... I don't know. It, there's a, there's plot holes here and there in Harry Potter and we just have to like hand wave over them, I think. I, I have a couple others, but I'll, I'll skip those. Um, I, I admit it's hard for me to read these chapters because I don't like it I don't like how the boys react to Hermione turning in the broomstick. They all they all fight in the in the books. There's always like within the trio, every character fights with one other character, um, and they always side. They kind of side with one another. Never are the three of them not speaking to each other at the same time. And I think actually, it's always two against one. So Harry and Hermione fight here. In the next book, Ron will fight with Harry. Then Ron and Hermione will fight here and in book six. And then Harry and Hermione will both fight with Ron in book seven when Ron walks off. Um, Harry always ends up with a friend, though, and possibly that's a, a choice of the writer because otherwise... Yeah, he's never he the one that's be, alone. Yes, he's never the one that's alone. I mean, he is in the movie, but in book four, but it's probably a good writing choice because otherwise it would make for a very boring uh, couple of chapters if it's like, and then I talked to nobody. But but Ron is able to go hang out with... Um, with his brothers in, in book four. And then Hermione doesn't really hang out with anybody here. She's just alone working all by herself. And it's actually interesting um, how Ron has been the one kind of like how he was the one who is suspicious of Lockhart in book two. He's the one who's suspicious of Hermione's activities. And he even is able to like track her schedule a little bit and be like, how is she able to be in these classes at the same time? So he's Mm -hmm. surprisingly persistent despite being angry at her. I think think he's looking for fodder to be angry as well. Yeah. He wants to, he wants to be, uh, but Hermione has obviously we we know she's bitten off more than she can chew oh, with all of these girl. classes. I mean, yeah. I'm looking forward to her blowing up in divination soon. Oh, it's gonna be so um, good. And she hasn't <laughs> yet learned that you don't have to read every book that's assigned on the syllabus. Yeah, especially like, the ones about Muggles. Um, the Dementor's kiss is truly horrible, and I'm de- depressed thinking about it. What a, a truly existential crisis that brings up that that they suck out the soul with a kiss. Ugh. Lupin Lupin says you can exist without your soul, you know, as long as your brain and heart are still working, but you'll have no sense of self anymore, no memory, no anything. There's no chance at all of recovery. You'll just exist as an empty shell and your soul is gone forever lost. So we see that in the in the wizarding world, the conception of the soul has to do with the sense of self. That the soul is the spark of individuality, personality, who you are at your core. I think that tracks pretty well with the way that we might understand a soul within our faith context. Um, and to think of that being, you know, annihilated seems like, when if you wanted to try to figure out a way of talking about hell then you could say that you could say that when we don't thankfully we don't see anybody's soul sucked out in these books but in a kind of parallel fantasy novels i'm, I'm thinking they talk about the same way in his dark materials with the demons are an embodiment of a person's soul the animal companion that spends t- that you know mm-hmm. is as close to a person as their own soul and when 
um, in those books, the bond between the demon and the person is severed. They become like, I imagine someone kissed by a dementor. Oh yeah. Lifeless kind of lacking a awareness of physical survival of, of personal personality. Um, and that, that is like cutting off their soul and the power is so great that it's able to, you know, burst open a, a doorway a between portal, worlds. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thankfully we don't see it. We don't see the Dementors kiss, but I imagine it would be the similar as it would be in the Philip Pullman novels. I'm curious, you know, if we're thinking about it from a Christian perspective, mm-hmm. I, I guess when I think, when I conceive of the soul and I try to philosophically and theologically imagine it, I think of the thing that tethers us to God that it's the thing that, you know, that spark, we are made in God's image and likeness. Mm -hmm. uh, And it is that, that which is of God's image and likeness inside of us is our soul. That's one way you could, Mm. you could describe the soul. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to think of that, there might be some sort of horrible nightmare creature that could take that away. Yeah. um, Is really, really disgusting and horrible. And, and taking away yeah, individuality and life and creativity. Another, so I just thought of another fantasy parallel, which is in A Wrinkle in Time on the planet Kamazots, whatever that planet they go to is. They have it, that big, you know, hive brain thing that's controlling everybody. And all of them kind of lack a soul in that same way. They're all perfectly in sync, like clockwork. Um, there's no individuality, there's no creativity, and there's really no you know, life force essence. They're just flat. Um, and that's another image I'm thinking of um, in terms of what living without a soul might look like. Harry said that interestingly, maybe going back to the wizard criminal justice system, oh, no. Harry's, Harry, I'm not going to do it. Harry says <laughs> that Harry says that black deserves the Dementor's kiss. Mm. And Lupin says, do you really think anyone deserves that? Uh, Lupin, of course, we love we love Lupin. He is with this question, trying to prompt Harry to expand his understanding of justice. Mm-hmm. The kind of when when Harry says that Black deserves this, he is talking one hundred percent about retributive justice, right. the, the eye for an eye kind of justice. Well, you know this person led to the deaths of my parents or as so he thinks, and therefore he deserves to have his soul sucked out of him. Retributive justice is really not justice at all. It's, it's revenge. When Lupin says, do you really think anyone deserves that? He is pushing Harry towards the restorative type of justice, which is actually addressing the 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 just the sin the break mm-hmm. um, that has happened and addressing in a way that can lead to new life and new possibilities as opposed to simple revenge eye for an eye type of uh, you know the death penalty being mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. worst example in the real it's world a, it's of all re- retributive justice yeah right. and the Dementor's kiss memory says and your soul is gone forever lost it is gone what do you think Lupin would think serious deserves if he thinks he's guilty, which he does at this point in the books. Ask, but do you think he de- he thinks he deserves Azkaban? Do you think he deserves a fair trial and then Azkaban? I wonder what Lupin wants Harry to think, or what Lupin's prompting Harry to, to wonder. That's a good question because even Azkaban itself is horribly horrible. unjust. It's a great deterrent for law breaking, as we see with Hagrid. Like he never wants to go back there, so he's going to be on the right side of the law, even if it means losing something he loves. And is it is it cruel and unusual? Would Lupin want that even for someone who betrayed his best, a former best friend of his, who betrays his other best friends and gets them killed? Well, I think we'll see a little bit more of that when we get to the climax of the book, or near the mm-hmm. climax of the book, when Lupin and, and Sirius actually confront each other, because um, Lupin could just kill him right there. Absolutely. But he doesn't. He he waits to to listen and and actually hear what he has to say. I have absolutely no notes for Ravenclaw or Gryffindor <sighs> versus Ravenclaw because it's as you've Quidditch. said many times it's Quidditch, which eh, J.K. Quidditch. Rowling didn't really like apparently. Um, and we I then, don't like reading it. <laughs> the chapter ends with uh, another element of the deception of the story of the mystery, mm-hmm. which is you know Sirius attacking Ron. And everyone thinks, oh, he was aiming for Harry, 
but he just got the beds mixed up. But no, he's going for the rat. Yeah, we just don't know that yet. So it's it's another gone. another element of it's really wonderfully done where mm-hmm. it's it's setting us up for and then we can look at the breadcrumbs going backwards to the the severed oh. finger and all that stuff and 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 um Scabbers actually Pettigrew does the same thing again that he did <sighs> yeah. 13 years ago uh in in faking his own death. Yeah. <laughs> he only has one trick. And as Dumbledore will later point out, Sirius does not behave like an innocent man. He does things that easily look like he's he's the bad guy. And it really just, I think, shows his single-minded determination to end Pettigrew's life, to, to end the betrayer's life, in order to protect Harry, certainly. But there's also, there is some retributive justice involved in this. And um, later in, in the climax of the book, that will come into question. It's not just that he's innocent. It's that he's actually med- premeditating actually becoming a criminal next time on the book club we'll be reading harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban chapters 14 through 16 that's snape's grudge the quidditch final oh good and professor Honey's <laughs> prediction happy reading thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for nerdy christians you can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media facebook.com slash nerdy christians and on twitter at nerdy christians you can find me on twitter at rev adam thomas or on my brand new website adamthomas.net check out seven of shadow the final volume of my fantasy series the shields of sularil on amazon you can always find both carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for nerdy christians and if you are listening to this the day that it goes live please be sure to vote tomorrow oh yes everyone's a bit of a fixer-upper but true love brings out the best god's love for us is a door that is always open a knock that is always answered may god thaw our frozen hearts and give us courage to face our fears with love taking off our gloves and showing the world who we truly are. Amen.